This week on this fresh new episode of the year, the future of ZFS in FreeBSD we're going to cover. We also look at the highlights from the FreeBSD quarterly status reports. We also fly a little bit with the Raven, modern KDE on FreeBSD we mention, and the many ways to launch FreeBSD in EC2, as well as good old games installers on NetBSD. This week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 279, Future of ZFS, recorded on the 2nd of January 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we welcome you to what people may already call the best episode uh, of 2019 thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> of course, we are fresh in the new year, and we bring you the headlines for this week, as always, with the future of ZFS in FreeBSD. Yeah, um, so this is a post that Matt Macy sent out to the uh, FreeBSD-current uh, and dash file system, I think, um, talking about uh, basically the result of the last few uh, ZFS leadership calls. So now, once a month... Um, the people working on OpenZFS across all the platforms, so that's um, Lumos, FreeBSD, Linux, OS X, um, and, well, that happens to be the same person, but also the people working on uh, ZFS on Windows, even. Uh, and we have a call, and we've been talking about things that are important to all of us. And one of those is how do we get all of the versions of ZFS up to the same set of features so that there aren't features that only exist in one of the implementations of ZFS. Okay. Trying to get ZFS to be more common across all the platforms so that all the platforms have all the features, basically, uh, and ensuring compatibility between those. Um, you know, one of the... Going on a tangent before we even get into the story, uh, one of the other things we've been talking about is an extra flag for when you're creating a pool where you can say, you know, make this pool compatible with what was common across all ZFS's um, in 2018. Um, and so the idea is that we will define uh, the list of feature flags that every uh, su- supported or, or identified version of ZFS had at the beginning of each year, and you'll be able to use that as a compatibility marker and say, you know, uh, when I'm creating this pool, I want it to work with, you know, or to have the kind of lowest common denominator of features that is on all versions of ZFS so that when I create the pool or for, you know, a USB stick or even just for my server or whatever, that it can be imported on any uh, system that's running at least the 2018 version of ZFS. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yep. Good to have. Yeah. Uh, And the idea is like right now it's like, well, you have to kind of know which features to disable on each version when you create the pool to make it compatible with the other versions. And it's just kind of complicated. Whereas if we can just say, you know, create a pool where compatibility is equal to OpenZFS 2018, then only features supported by all the major uh, platforms on January 1st of 2018 will be enabled and the rest will be left and you'll be switched on later. Uh, So that, you know, at some point you can say, oh, I'm going to upgrade to what was... Uh, globally available in 2019, and so on. Part of that is 
you know, if you create a pool and you don't update all the features, or even if you just, it's an older pool, but you're running it on a newer system, and it's like, hey, you should upgrade. Every time you run zpool status, it's like, hey, you should upgrade. It's like, yeah, but if I do, then I won't be able to import it on this, my, you know, uh, my Ubuntu machine that's running an older version of ZFS, uh, or whatever. Anyway, so that was one of the things. So, um, when looking at how to get all the different platforms up to the latest version of ZFS, um, there were a couple of things that have changed over the years uh, that we had to be dealt with. Uh, the first one is that up until this point, uh, FreeBSD has been pulling in commits from the Illumos version of uh, ZFS, which it switched to when OpenSolaris went away. Uh, and it, the code is basically in sync enough that every time there's a commit to Illumos that touches ZFS, uh, the FreeBSD people can look at it, say, oh, that does apply to FreeBSD, and just cherry-pick that one commit over into our repo, and then we're caught up. Uh, so every time a feature gets introduced or something, we can just copy it over, and it works fairly well. Um, but uh, some of the main companies that have been working on ZFS, uh, for example, Delphix, where Matt Aarons works, uh, have started switching from Illumos to Linux as their platform uh, to build their appliances. Um, so now, new features that they develop will mostly land in Linux first, and then maybe get ported to Illumos, uh, most likely. But there will be a delay there. Um, and FreeBSD wants those features sooner rather than later. Mm. Uh, so we looked at just pivoting to pulling features from Linux, the same way we do from Illumos. Uh, the problem is there's a very, very large delta um, the basically for a long time ZFS on Linux was quite a ways behind uh, because they started with a snapshot, imported it, got it all working on Linux and then caught up um, but they added their own improvements and features and stuff as they were catching up in the meantime so, yeah. yeah so they're basically were adding features as they were getting caught up Obviously, instead of just waiting till they were caught up to start adding features, which would have delayed them by years. Um, so it means when you try to take one of those features, for example, uh, the one I wanted was the multi-mount protection that the Lawrence Livermore National Labs uh, had put in. The problem is that most of the code that they added was before one of the upstream features that rebuilt how an import happens. Um, so... That code just doesn't really merge nicely into FreeBSD because it changes code that has been replaced with entirely different code. But some of the fixes and stuff that happened to the MMP feature after that was imported. So when you identify the 20 or so commits that affect this feature, about eight of them happened after the rewrite of zpool import, but the rest were before. Uh, and so... That's a lot of gets, things to untangle. Yeah, it gets harder to untangle. Um, and then sometimes when there's a conflict, it's like, well, is this just stuff that drifted over time? Uh, or is this something that was changed specific for Linux and doesn't need to be changed for BSD? And so on. Uh, and it got, it was very difficult. And that was a relatively small feature that wasn't, you know, had its fingers everywhere and so on. Mm. There are other features uh, that are bigger. Yeah. yeah. 
Exactly. Like, for example, uh, when the native encryption feature was added to Linux, uh, it touches basically everything, uh, especially huge changes to the way send and receive works because it supports raw send and receive to let you send the encrypted data rather than the the normal plain text version. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of the other features that have been done since then are based on top of it. Uh, so, you know, it'd be a lot of work to try to take features that came after encryption and bring them into a system that doesn't have encryption yet. Yeah. Uh, so it all gets very messy. Um, so while cherry picking is probably possible, um, it's more difficult because there's not any point in time where the FreeBSD version and the ZFS on Linux version are really anywhere near the same. Mm, there's too much change uh, going on. Yeah. yeah uh, they were just never happen to be, they don't have, there's not a point on the graph where there, you could start from where things aren't wildly different. Um, so then the question was, how do we get caught up? It's like, if we try to cherry pick individual features, there's going to be merge conflicts all the time. It's going to take a lot of manual, not fun work, and it's likely to introduce lots of bugs. Um, that's probably not what we want. Um, so then the question was, well, what if we could just wholesale import all of, um, the new upstream and then reapply the changes um, locally, the, the, the local changes that we have, for example, all the VFS integration stuff, yeah. uh, all the stuff that's FreeBSD specific, uh, which is fairly easy to identify now because we've done a good job of wrapping it in if def FreeBSD in the code, even just so that it's obvious uh, what's happening. Or in particular, yeah. it often has, you know, if def Alumos, the original code, and for FreeBSD, this code, so that when you're merging it, you can the change uh, to the Illumos code applies and it's there. So you can see, oh, I, I need to make the corresponding change to this FreeBSD code. Um, and so doing something like that, but with the uh, upstream being uh, ZOL instead. Um, and in the process of asking some questions about this, uh, Brian Bellendorf, very nice uh, guy that runs the ZFS on Linux project, uh, said, well, you know, we could let you upstream those changes. Uh, And so the plan now is to actually basically create an OS subdirectory in the upstream repo Mm. and have uh, FreeBSD as a directory in Linux and then maybe others in the future as well uh, and put all the operating system-specific bits like um, the bit where ZFS ends up talking to the actual disk on FreeBSD, that's via Geom. So that's one set of files. And yeah. on Linux, that's its own thing. And on Lumos, it's different as well. Uh, so by putting those files in separate directories and the common code in the other directories, we end up with kind of what the OpenZFS project was trying to be in the beginning. Was The idea there was one common repo that had all the uh, OS agnostic code. And then people took that and made their own implementation or they ported it to their platform, basically. The mm. problem there was no one was ever going to do the work of upstreaming code back to the common repo um, where nobody was going to use it. And somebody would then have to pull it down into their repo before it could be used. And testing an OS agnostic version was going to be really difficult. Mm, sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
one of the reasons that Delphix had switched to the Linux repo from Illumos was the testing framework that the in the Linux repo was very good. They had all this code coverage testing and they were actually being able to tell uh, when there were problems better. So the plan is with this, we will also be able to take advantage of that and do something uh, we've talked about a bit before. If you remember back, what, two or three BSD cans ago, we interviewed oh. that uh, GNOME developer. Yeah. And they had added a FreeBSD machine to their CI system so that when somebody's working on GNOME and they make a commit, and it causes GNOME not to work on FreeBSD anymore, they get alerted right away, within hours. Okay. Um, rather than before, when they weren't testing on FreeBSD, it meant they introduced something that wouldn't work on FreeBSD, uh, you know, a Linux and system it, by accident or something. Um, and they didn't and know about it until six months later, much later. They would yeah. release that version of GNOME, then two months later, that would finally get ported to FreeBSD, and then mm. we'd report the problem. Well, it's eight months later now. That developer doesn't remember what any of that code is about and is working on something else entirely. Yeah, Whereas it's good a to couple get a hours later. They're probably going to have the context and be able to fix it quickly. Mm. And the same is true for this one. And the same will be true here, where contributions will be able to be tested on both platforms right away, uh, and they won't be merged until the tests pass on both sides. Mm hmm. So I'm reading here that um, Matt is hoping to submit the PR for the ZFS on Linux in time in January. Yeah, so this is the changes to upstream there to add basically FreeBSD as a supportive platform uh, to the OpenZFS repo, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so the biggest concerns I've seen around this uh, were people not quite understanding what was happening. So there's not different implementations of ZFS, right? It's all the same ZFS code. Uh, it's just been ported to the different platforms. Um, and we're basically just taking the porting code that makes ZFS work on FreeBSD and upstreaming it to one of the other projects so that all the code will be together. And it means that when changes happen upstream, they get tested against FreeBSD as well. And it makes it faster for those new features to come into FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. uh, but importantly, FreeBSD won't lose features. Um, right now, there is the, the one feature that FreeBSD has that other OpenZFS implementations don't have is the trim support. Uh, however, for years now, there have been work on a ZFS generic version of trim uh, that is quite a bit smarter because it's integrated more into ZFS and less into Geom, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And the idea is that that feature um, is in use by some companies already, so it works, and we just need to get it polished. And uh, I think mostly what it's waiting on in OpenZFS is just code review. So if we can get that reviewed and committed upstream, then it means that that is the one feature uh, that currently would, if we switch today, uh, that's the one feature that would go away. Uh, okay. But the idea but is to fix that first, replacement. Uh, yeah. and then there won't be any features that go away. And the other thing is, on the contrary, sure we would all of the specific work for FreeBSD that's gone into ZFS gets preserved. Um, yeah. So if there are specific things you know about, you can make sure they add them to our to-do list. Um, the biggest thing we'd like to do is get tests uh, for anything like that sorted out and upstreamed, so that 
um, a you know we have the test has to pass before and then uh, we'll figure out if it passes after and so on and get as much of that sorted out as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there are license wise, there's nothing changing there. It, it's uh, just the yeah, same. it's all of ZFS is under the CDDL, and that's probably never going to change. So mm. okay, yeah. So I see that there's a lot of potential gains for FreeBSD or other projects mm-hmm. importing it from this way, and it's just need a little bit upfront work into uh, getting the the port properly done. Yes, so I think um, as we get a little bit further, the idea is that there will actually be a port you can install uh, to try this revamped version of ZFS. Uh, And that way you'll be able to test it on a machine before it's actually committed to head. Mm. Um, I'm not entirely sure how that's going to work. So providing a new kernel module will take care of most of it. Um, The downside is the um, the userland stuff the the freebsd userland tools are written against the uh, basically have different have some divergence in the uh, uh, features and stuff like um, yeah. they've added stuff to the command line tools for example the uh, zpool iostat um, can do a bunch of extra things on uh, the ZFS and Linux version that we'll be able to gain when we do this. Um, cool. It'll just be a matter of figuring out how how to upgrade to, pools and stuff. And, yeah. uh, no, not so much that is when during the testing phase before we update the version of ZFS that's in head, you'll have the command line tools from basically we'll call it old ZFS for now. Yeah. Uh, but the kernel module for new ZFS. Oh right, and they're so not in sync making yet. them yeah. talk together and so on. Mm. Okay, or, these are the you know, final if the port, bits. Of- if the port installs the ZFS and Zpool commands, but into user local SBIN or whatever, may, you have to like set your path properly to make it use the ones that match your kernel module mm. or something, and it's maybe a bit icky. But uh, well, that's, uh, that's mostly during the testing phase. Um, yeah. But there's also Once the possibility of maintaining that or at least uh, like a zfs-dev port um, that would allow possibly older versions of, oh, say, FreeBSD 12 where what's in ZFS and FreeBSD 12 doesn't change. Eventually there'll be a 12.1 and it maybe has newer ZFS code. Um, but if there was a port you might be able to get newer ZFS features even quicker. Mm. Yeah, that's the potential benefit. And also... Yeah. It's good that, to, that there's the coordination happening and not everyone is trying to pull some stuff from other people. So there's a coordinated effort uh, going forward and people can see yes. that there's um, and so, stuff happening. Um, a bunch of things are happening there. Matt Ahrens has been added as one of the approvers to the, the repo so that um, there's more people uh, that can actually merge stuff into ZFS, uh, mm-hmm. but also... We're making some changes to make sure that stuff uh, gets more review and has more consideration for all the platforms before it's committed. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Good. example, on ZFS and Linux, they've, uh, if you know, the A shift thing. Uh, for a long time, it was complicated and you had to use like GNOP or something on FreeBSD. But eventually, mm-hmm. there was the SysCTL where you could specify the minimum automatic A shift or whatever. On Linux, they just made it a 
like you do Zupil create dash O A shift equals the number. Um, but it's not actually a property of the pool. So that's kind of a little weird. Um, mm. And more importantly, what was pointed out is that's an internal implementation detail. For the user, they should be specifying a block size. So instead of these mm. slightly confusing numbers like 9 and 12, which are what's that? What's the power shift? of yeah. that, <laughs> um, it should be you know sector size equals 4096 or something. Um, mm. And then you know internally, it can do the math and turn that into 2 to the power of 12 or whatever. But... Yeah. Um, it's more along the lines sure. of other file system formatters. And, yeah. Right. And the idea is to try to make sure that things, uh, the user interface is the same across all the platforms. And so a lot more thought is being put into these type of things now. And that's basically the result of all of us getting together at the Open ZFS Dev Summit uh, last year was deciding that we should have this monthly call and talk about these things and try to sort them out and um, deal with these things before features get into yes. ZFS because changing them after the fact is actually kind of complicated. Mm. More um, hairy. And separately, we also had the discussion of we actually need a deprecation policy for ZFS. Uh, now that ZFS is as old as it is, uh, we found the first feature that we would like to deprecate and remove from ZFS. And how do we do that? Deduplication? How long do we have to wait? <laughs> um, it was deduplicated send. Ah. So it's not actually related to deduplication, the pool feature. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it has a bunch of problems and isn't necessarily that useful. Um, and most people don't use it, at least we think, uh, and so on. And so it's like, well, we need to make a tool that can read a deduplicated send and turn it into a regular send to basically rehydrate it. Um, yeah. Because if people have sends they've backed up to tape or something, uh, they need to be able to restore them even when we have a newer version. Like that's one of the guarantees of ZFS is that if you have a send stream saved, you'll be able to restore it. Uh, so we have to basically take the code that can read it and it will basically uh, rewrite the stream by pulling out the uh, forward references or, or backwards references. So the way deduplicated send works is it's not actually sending the data as is deduplicated on the pool. It's actually just deduplicating it as it's sending it. So you're sending one snapshot. Uh, it just starts building a dedupe table. And when it sees a block it's already seen, it just in the send stream says, oh, go look at this block, which is the same. Um, it's not actually, like a lot of people probably assume when you do a deduplicated send, it's just using the dedupe table you already have on the sending side to say, all right, it's already that block or whatever, uh, but it doesn't work that way. Okay. Okay, so we'll stay in touch with what's happening and... Uh, and if you're interested, uh, video from all of the past ZFS leadership calls are up on the Open ZFS YouTube channel uh, and all the future ones will be as well. Excellent. So then people can rewatch those and see what's been discussed and yes, what's going on. Uh, so if you want to see what the discussion has been, uh, you know, because basically originally when we started the call, the idea was let's figure out all the features that exist somewhere in ZFS and all the ones that are coming up uh, and identify who's porting them to which platforms. And in doing so, we realized that some of this is actually going to be a lot more difficult. And mm. uh, so 
we're hoping the way forward is basically to just get caught up to what um, is in the ZFS and Linux repo so that going forward, we'll be able to just cherry pick commits at a time uh, once we feel they're ready. Um, kind of like we, we've done with the Lumos. Mm-hmm. Um, Same thing. And I, the, my understanding is that the Alumos people will basically be doing the same thing. Uh, I think their plan is to try to stabilize on the 0.8 release of Open or of uh, ZFS on Linux, get caught up to that, and then be able to walk forward, kind of commit at a time after that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's good, uh, and that's a good outcome from coming uh, from these Dev summits and meeting people in person. Yes. Um, and again, big thanks to Matt for organizing that and uh, still putting up with all of us after all this time. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's been a, it's been a journey certainly for ZFS and the Open ZFS version. Yep. Okay, uh, but this is not the only story that we have this week. We also have the FreeBSD quarterly status update. So this has been a little bit in the making, but that's uh, yeah, so. The first thing is the stat, uh, the quarterly status reports are back after being away for a year. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good thing, and we have to thank um, the people uh, who were behind the scenes working on this, even during the holiday breaks, uh, and that's made this actual update uh, possible. Yes, uh, I think that was uh, Edward Matthews. Um, uh, Piotrowski and um, yes. Edward and, Thomas uh, Napirala. Okay, so uh, and, uh, thanks to those guys. Daniel Ebdrup for writing the intro. Mm-hmm. This is the, yeah. This is always the interesting part of who is going to write the intro this time. Uh, <laughs> of course, the I think you guys themselves. put too much pressure on the intro. But. <laughs> yep. Well, so, so this is Well, you update. do one every week, so writing like one every quarter should be cake for you. I, I nominate <laughs> you to do it perpetually now. Yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> If you're interested in writing, then get in touch and then we'll put you in there. <laughs> yep. um, the big change here is that they've switched uh, to a more pull request model and let people write their reports in Markdown instead of giving them this complicated XML template and trying to manage all that. Yeah, that so, makes it easier to put it together and people have a common template with the sections and fill in the gaps and then they can create this page that you're seeing right now. Yep. Uh, so there's a report from the continuous integration team about what they worked on in basically all of 2018. Um, update from the core team on the different things that were discussed uh, in each quarter. As you see, big long lists. Uh, changes to the ports uh, collection across the quarter. Each of the quarterly um, branches were created. Um, and the number of ports grew to, I think, 34,000 over the course of the year. Mm-hmm. From under 32,000 yeah. before. Uh, and uh, Antoine ran over 113 uh, XP runs, basically testing a patch of the ports tree and making sure that it didn't cause additional failures. Uh, more and more things were converted to the uses framework, uh, including QT4 and 5, uh, OpenGL, uh, Apache, Emacs, etc. Yep, that's also good to have for uh, the more ports. The release engineering team uh, over the course of the status reports took care of releasing 10.4, 11.2, and 12.0. Uh, 
Um, the FreeBSD Foundation has their report, including yep, a huge list of conferences they attended and supported. Yeah, the fundraising efforts and the features we uh, got started or uh, were allowed to finish even. And um, then, of course, the software developers on staff that uh, did, did some work, not yeah. also in security so, areas, but also others. Yeah. Um, so the foundation funded uh, work on the RAID Z expansion project, which will let you add additional disks to an existing RAID Z set. So turning a RAID Z2 of five disks into a RAID Z2 of six disks and so on. Uh, that's in progress. Um, headless out-of-the-box support for ARM boards like the Beagle One Black. Uh, and uh, performance and scalability improvements. I know uh, MJG has been working on a lot of stuff there. Uh, mm -hmm. They also funded ZFS improvements, including uh, improvements to the memory management code and so on. Um, support for newer Intel processors, um, like the Skylake servers and so on. Um, uh, updates to KQ to support 64-bit stuff, I think. 64-bit uh, inode support, if you remember back, that was part of that. Big, big, uh, the stack big, big guard, thing. Uh, kernel undefined behavior sanitizer. Lots of updates to toolchain as we've gotten rid of more and more GPL stuff. The i915 driver uh, investigation and, and work on making that happen. Uh, NVDIM support uh, and ACPI conf and so on, so that that new hardware is supported. Uh, improvements to continuous integration, including the website dashboard and the physical dashboard uh, mm -hmm. that we take to conferences and shame people by pointing at the red lights. <laughs> um, yep. And support for creating fat file systems with makefs uh, so that you can create uh, images as a non-root user instead of having to you know use mdconfig and so on that usually requires root and uh, lots of updates you can see the huge list of conferences that were attended and sponsored uh, um, big list lots of other projects including brooks worked on 32-bit compatibility uh, and other api cleanups Sorting out things so that um, the IOCTL and SysCTL support for ifconfig and netstat uh, when running a 32-bit compat mode. So that is, if you have, say, a jail full of 32-bit binaries working on a kernel at 64-bit, making sure that that doesn't cause problems and so on. Um, Constantine uh, Kib uh, did the 4-gig address split. So previously... Um, in 32-bit, you know that the most amount of memory you can represent is 4 gigabytes, right? 2 to the power of 32. Um, and previously, that was split. Uh, so you basically had 3 gigabytes, less about 4 megabytes, uh, for user space and 1 gig for the kernel. Uh, but the way they've done it now, uh, as part of the basically Spectre Meltdown fixes, is there's actually a whole 4 gigabytes, less, I think, 8 megabytes or so, um, for user space and four gigabytes for the kernel. Um, so this makes uh, a bunch of things work better, including actually ZFS on 32-bit uh, works a bit better now because the available address space is now four gigabytes instead of one gigabyte uh, for ZFS. Although if you're going to use ZFS, 64-bit is probably still your friend there because uh, <laughs> having, you know, Hundreds of gigs of address space is much better. I don't know yeah. what the limit is. I think it's actually four terabytes of address space. I forget. Yeah, it's 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 big. It's big. Definitely bigger yeah. than on i three six. Four gigabytes. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but it's not limitless. Yeah, it's 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 big, but um, it's there's an, an end to it. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, basically a lot of stuff in those reports. Um, too much to cover all. It's not just projects, mm-hmm. but also architecture changes, individual ports uh, changes, a little bit of documentation, yep. uh, and third-party projects. So yep, definitely uh, something to dig into. Yes, the other big ones include the bootloader. Um, if you've oh, probably yeah. noticed, if you're running FreeBSD 12, the bootloader is now scripted in Lua, making it much easier for you to modify the menu and add things to the menu yourself. Um, but also just a lot of other changes there, including, uh, thanks to Ian Lepore, the work I originally did for Geli to be able to decrypt disks went from being x86 only to being supported by all platforms except for PowerPC and Spark64. They were having some... The code mostly works, but hangs during boot. Uh, so if uh, you're interested in PowerPC or Spark64, you're welcome to try to fix that. Uh, but importantly, it means that uh, UEFI and ARM uh, all support booting from Geli encrypted disks uh, with my code now. Excellent. And That's uh, a huge good thanks to Ian Laporte for that. Yeah, there should um, be something for everyone in there. Even graphics uh, updates, graphics cards, the or, graphics team uh, has been busy. Alex and... Richardson worked on uh, being able to build FreeBSD on not FreeBSD. So compiling FreeBSD on a Mac or on Linux, uh, which is also mm, interesting. Yeah. Uh, Edward Naparala worked on device mode USB. So specifically, if you have a BeagleBone Black and you connect it to a computer with one of the on-the-go cables, um, the BeagleBone Black will show up as a device to your computer. So instead of powering just powering the BeagleBone Black, it'll actually let you treat the BeagleBone Black as if it was a, a USB stick or something, uh, mm. allowing you to... Um, send stuff to it. So instead of just the virtual serial port, you actually get uh, all the stuff you need to actually use it uh, as a device, which is very helpful for students using the Big One Black to take the uh, the FreeBSD Foundations course. Yeah. And many of these reports have a work in progress sessions or sections, so there's it's not all complete, completely finished yet, but if you want to help out or um, can can you know, fix some of these things that they listed there and definitely get in touch. There's always a person or a team listed there that you can uh, send a message to and mm-hmm. then you can help out. Yes, uh, that's about half of the point of these is actually uh, to point out what's being worked on so that you can uh, help out. Yeah, you know who's working and what they're working on and what the current issues are or what's been fixed since the last update. And that way you see that there's progress happening or, oh, there's someone working on exactly the thing that I need. And, uh, yeah, you can definitely uh, get in touch with those people and, and offer help or just ask questions. Yes. Or, or for example, uh, the save, restore, and migration support in Beehive. Uh, they include links to their GitHub wiki on how to actually save and restore a Beehive guest. So if you want to check out the patched code and actually try it, they have instructions. Yeah, for testing and uh, reporting things back if they're not uh, up to spar yet, but definitely something you can uh, help out the project with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this report is massive because it's basically a year of stuff, but... Yeah, (laughs) certainly there was some uh, backlog uh, accumulating, but we're now back on the... It was also a try for the new infrastructure of submitting these reports, but uh, I think we're confident that we can um, make 
much more progress. And you can already submit the bug report, not bug reports, <laughs> the reports for Stash the next report. quarter. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I think the biggest takeaway uh, from the fact that the quarterly status reports are back is please start writing your quarterly status report uh, for last quarter and get it submitted. Yeah, I think it's mid-January where you have to submit them. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Okay, then we'll look forward to the next one. And thanks again for writing up this one. And let's see what the news roundup has in store for us. So this is the news roundup for this week. Uh, one year of flying with the Raven ready for the desktop. So no, this is not the USS Raven that crashed on an unnamed M-class moon in the Delta Quadrant. Uh, sorry, little tech geek here. Um, <laughs> or track geek here, for example. So this is a blog post from erilinux.wordpress.com. And uh, it's about Raven ports or the Raven ports project. So uh, that goes like the following. It has been a little over one year now that I'm with the Ravenports project. Time to reflect my involvement, my expectations, and hopes. So Ravenports is a universal packaging framework for Unix operating systems. For the user, it provides easy access to binary packages of common software for multiple platforms. It has been the long-lasting champion on Repology's top 10 repositories regarding package freshness, or rarely dropping below 96%, while all other projects keep below 90%. Uh, for the porter, it offers a well-designed and elegant means of writing cross-platform build sheets that allow building the same version of the software with, completely or mostly, uh, the same compile-time configuration on different operating systems or distributions. And for the developer, it means a real-world project that's written in modern ADA, or ADA, Raven ADM, and C, PKG, as well as some Perl for, for support scripts and make. Uh, things feel very optimized and fast. Not being a programmer, though, I cannot really say anything about the actual code, and I thus leave it to the interested reader's judgment. So, um, it talks a little bit about platforms here. Platforms has initially been developed on Dragonfly BSD. Uh, when the author here became aware of that, uh, had already been ported to work on Linux 2. And he liked the idea of the project, but had no Dragonfly or Linux boxes available for tinkering and didn't feel like setting one up. So he moved in. And uh, as he checked back a little later, FreeBSD support had been added as well. And since he had just lost his excuse not to try it out right away, he started playing with it and was pretty happy. At that time, he had trouble to get a port that he wrote into FreeBSD's ports collection. And though that Raven could be an excellent prey. Uh, a playground to learn something and get a bit of experience that might help later with FreeBSD. And so, uh, in long changed the mind, uh, Raven is uh, rather similar to FreeBSD's port system in many ways, but where it differs, it's clearly superior. Uh, he also loves the cross-platform aspect, and thus Raven is simply the better place for him to take home. And so, the, this year saw the introduction of the Solaris slash Elomos support that he tried out on OmniOS, and also Darwin's support landed, upping up the count of supported platforms to five already. Not too bad for a young project, huh? While Raven does work on all five platforms, now it does so to varying degrees. Uh, but more on that a little later. So you can see a couple of screenshots here, how it's looking. Uh, the Raven Ports project consists of multiple Git repositories hosted on GitHub. Uh, the first one is Raven Source, which most importantly holds the raw ports as they are written by the porters. And it's the most busy repo with over 5,200 commits since March 2017. Almost 500 by himself. 
And uh, then there's the actual Raven ports repo that mostly contains the build sheets, which are compiled from Raven source and has over 1,400 commits right now. And so you can see. How yeah, so basically uh, Raven is the Raven ADM tool that does some management stuff combined with PKG, the FreeBSD package manager. Uh, and their changes to basically have a repo kind of the idea of package source, I guess, but with uh, binary packages and uh, being a little bit closer to FreeBSD ports, mm -hmm. but different. And Ada, because the people who started the project like Ada. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so the major changes later uh, down the line is there have been many uh, or some pretty big changes that happened with Raven over time. Initially, John started with a GCC 6-based tool chain, uh, only to switch to GCC 7 when it was released. Uh, this was before his time with the project, but I witnessed the switch to GCC 8. So that's always uh, tool chain related. And uh, changing that tool chain certainly is a major interruption, and most people are advised to just wait for the official repository to be re-rolled and then updated. So he had some bad luck in this regard, literally the day after he finished completing a working and almost complete set of basic packages for the FreeBSD i386 platform, faced a change to GCC8. Aye, bad timing. Uh, due to a lack of time, he still hasn't repeated the switch on i386, but plans to do it sometime later. And so, uh, desktop ready, question mark. Uh, there are a lot of people who will want to use Raven on servers. That's totally fine, of course. But for a project as ambitious as Raven Ports, it's necessary to provide a somewhat comfortable environment for the developers and the users alike. If it doesn't manage uh, to become a daily driver for people, it cannot succeed. So for some reason, they decided to work towards good desktop support for the little dev machine that they decided to um, use in the work on the project. And when it started, uh, X11 was already working and Openbox had freshly landed in the repo. So they did a, had a similar environment to work with, Openbox plus Xterm. However, they could not even change the keyboard layout. Hmm. Therefore, they wrote a port for set XKBD map, and eventually it was accepted as the first outside contribution to the project. So finally, different <laughs> or familiar keyboard layout. It, it can be a bit difficult to type if you're not yeah. sure. <laughs> Desktop <laughs> stuff can be hard, uh, as we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, you know, having a a full desktop environment like uh, KDE or Mate or something uh, usually involves a lot of ports um, mm. because of all the dependencies and, and bits and pieces. Um, and so getting all of those in a new package system is a lot of work. Uh, and if it's not the focus of the people working on it, then um, I imagine it'll be a while. Yeah. So, so speaking of that, yep. uh, getting to modern KDE on FreeBSD. Mm. end of the year update here yeah people have been waiting for that for a long time and it's finally here yeah uh so they post uh new stuff in the official freebsd repositories the x11 team has landed a new version of lib input uh opening up the way for kde plasma 5.14 to hit the port street this is a pretty big update and may frighten people with new wallpaper <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only that got changed. <laughs> um, what this means is that the graphic uh, graphical stack is once again on par with what Plasma Upstream expects, and we can get back to chasing releases as soon as they happen, rather than gnashing our teeth uh, at missing dependencies. 
Um, the KDE-FreeBSD CI servers are in the process of being updated to 12-stable, and we're integrating with the new experimental CI system as well. This means uh, that they will chase uh, FreeBSD 13, uh, well, sensibly modern systems, so not chasing current maybe. But uh, again, the idea here is like uh, what we talked about earlier with GNOME, KDE team having a FreeBSD CI server and making sure that... Uh, they notice when a commit they make makes KDE not work on FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. uh, so looking at the first quarter of 2019, uh, QT4 is scheduled to be removed around mid-March. Uh, this will affect a lot of ports uh, as this basically get rid of uh, KDE4 and mean you're using KDE5. Uh, but things like Le uh, Leechcraft, uh, which looks like a desktop environment to me, uh, but I've never heard of before. <laughs> it doesn't seem to have been updated to Qt5 and so on. Uh, Qt Web Engine uh, was updated from uh, 5.9 to 5.12. Uh, Web Engine is uh, terrible for distro packagers, especially outside of Google's target audience. And uh, this has been lagging, um, but we're now in a position to work on an update, and we're welcome a new contributor to help with that. Uh, Wayland, uh, so it's about time to also have uh, KDE Plasma Wayland sessions on FreeBSD. So there's been some experimental stuff from about a year ago, but nothing that could work in the official ports tree. Uh, it's now feasible uh, and hoping that they can uh, sit down and debug the Kmail Wayland issues and get that all sorted out. And then um, they also have uh, Cookbook and Colorful <laughs> or Colorfill uh, that they've been working on. But... Excellent. Uh, there we have FreeBSD KDE is apparently all caught up. Oh, yeah. And uh, thanks to the people who did a lot of work making that happen. It's mm -hmm. certainly not easy to do, uh, but the more people help, the better it is. Now, if it's just testing, then that's uh, already a big help. But if um, you can code, and that's even better. Okay. Um, we also found the many ways to launch FreeBSD in EC2. Uh, in Demonic Dispatches by Colin Percival at the end of the year, he reflects a little bit on uh, EC2 FreeBSD, and that resulted in this blog post. Uh, so the many ways to launch FreeBSD in EC2 uh, came about by talking to FreeBSD users recently. Uh, Colin became aware that while he created a lot of tools, he hasn't done a very good job of explaining how, and more importantly, when to use them. So for all of the EC2 curious FreeBSD users out there, here are the many ways to launch and configure FreeBSD in EC2, ranging from the simplest to the most complicated, but most powerful. So the first thing is to launch FreeBSD and SSH in. Uh, this is the most straightforward way to get started with FreeBSD, uh, using either the EC2 API, which is most easily accessed using the AWS CLI package, or the AWS console, spin up the stock FreeBSD AMI, and you have a few choices to make here. First, whether to use the community or marketplace AMIs, uh, second, which EC2 region you want to launch your instance into. Then third, which of uh, many EC2 instance types you want to use. And fourth, how large you want the root disk to be, uh, which is the root file system, and will be resized automatically if you select the size larger than the default 10 gigabytes, and whether to attach additional disks. So um, for hobbyists, the easiest answers would probably be to use the marketplace AMIs in the EC2 region, which is geographically closest to you. Uh, with a T2.micro and a single 10 gigabyte disk, you can already do 
a lot of things here. And after you launch the instance, you can SSH in as the EC2-user user and then SU to root with no password required. And from this point on, setting up your EC2 instance is just setting up a physical server. Yep. Not too difficult. Yeah, or you can launch FreeBSD and provide user data. Uh, you know, if you want to automate the process of actually setting up the initial bit, um, um, so something that will yield a consistent configuration without the time-consuming process of SSHing in and setting things up uh, themselves is configuring it. Uh, so when you launch an EC2 instance, you have the option of providing some user data, which is just a blob of text. On FreeBSD, this is processed by the ConfigInit tool, uh, which is a tool that Colin wrote uh, specifically for this purpose. Uh, so in that blob of text, you can put things like this, which basically says, append to rc.conf these lines. Uh, and then the first boot package uh, will run, get a list of the packages you want installed from here, uh, and install all those packages. And then it's set to... Um, start those services as well. So to have FreeBSD install the Apache 2.4 package uh, on first boot and then run the daemon, uh, you can do that. Uh, for more complex configurations, you can also provide a tarball instead and attach that tarball uh, as the uh, user data and it can have all the files that you want. So um, it will basically read the tarball, go through each file in the tarball and append it to the file with that name on the system. Um, so to launch a port snap mirror, uh, he's got the lines to add to rc.conf, newsyslog.conf, and create the web server config, uh, and runs a script to start synchronizing uh, from the master. And that's all it takes uh, to set up a port snap mirror. Hmm. Now, if you want to get more in-depth, you can use the FreeBSD AMI Builder AMI. <laughs> okay. So the downside to doing what we just talked about with user data is it takes time to run package install these 200 packages I want every time it boots up. And if you're going to be starting up instances frequently enough where that time is not a good trade-off, you can create your own AMI. So rather than having to run a bunch of commands the first time it boots, you could build an image that has those commands already run and then basically clone it. Um, but the problem with AMIs is as part of the first boot, it does things like generate an SSH key. You don't want all of your AMI, uh, AWS machines to have the same SSH key. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> and so doing it manually, fixing that manually is a pain. So there's the AMI builder AMI. So this is a, an AMI which boots into a memory disk and installs FreeBSD onto the root disk. Uh, then the lets the user make any changes they want. So basically you run this, it boots in memory, installs FreeBSD on the disk, lets you SSH in, and then in the CH root, you can install all the packages, create all the config files, get it all pristine, then bake that. Uh, and the system changes, like the SSH key, were in the memory disk, those go away, and only what you wrote to the disk is there. And now you have a virtual machine you can clone many times and it'll already have all those packages installed. Good. But you're going to have to redo this uh, occasionally because you're going to want to update the packages, right? Um, and so 
it really depends on how often you're doing this and how long they're going to last and how long you need to be the same, whether you want to do this or just have it install the packages uh, during boot up, because that way, you know, uh, if the packages are newer now, then you'll get newer packages right away instead of having a pre-built image with old packages and you have to just wait while a package upgrades, which is probably going to take at least as long as just having installed the packages fresh, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, same amount, roughly. Or you can go further and you can build uh, a FreeBSD AMI from a modified FreeBSD source tree. So if you're actually modifying FreeBSD and you say custom compiling your version uh, with patches or local changes or whatever, um, then you might actually want to build uh, the AMI from that. Um, so if you just uh, follow the normal FreeBSD release process and basically run make EC2 AMI, uh, it will build it the same way the free FreeBSD release engineering team does uh, to upload it to Amazon in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, many options. And uh, yeah, good to to know about these. And, yeah, uh, and if the, you... the last one, if uh, instead of a stock FreeBSD release, if you want to customize your image entirely, um, you can do that as well. Uh, you know, if you want to have a system which boots into a memory disk uh, and will uh, keep working even if an EVS volume dies or something, maybe you want to boot from NFS and make use of Amazon's Elastic file system, which is NFS as a service, uh, and maybe you want to build an AMI of a completely different OS. Um, then you can use Colin's tool BSD EC2 Image Upload. As the name suggests, the tool simply uploads a disk image and bakes it into an EC2 AMI. If you're doing, if you're going this route, everything else is up to you. You're going to need to do it yourself. Mm. Uh, but you know, you'll if you're doing something sufficiently obscure that you almost certainly need to do everything yourself anyway. Yeah, but that's uh, yeah. It's, so you can see there's many options to run FreeBSD in EC2 and um, some more sophisticated, some others a little less, but you can start get started with uh, ease and with all of them uh, quite uh, straightforward with that instructions from Colin. And uh, if you are finding the FreeBSD EC2 support useful or would like to uh, see it mature even further, uh, Colin has a Patreon page for EC2. Um, so if you want to support his work on this, uh, you can click over there. The link is at the bottom of the article. Mm -hmm. And for the gamers out there, we have also good news. Uh, we found a blog post uh, about using the goggoodoldgames.com installers for Linux on NetBSD. That sounds cool, and it certainly is. Um, so here's uh, the blog post from the get the Dress Up Geek Out um, blog post. Yeah, so this is website. from uh, Charlotte, who presented at oh. uh, Meet BSD. Oh right, I remember her. Yeah, I didn't talk to her, mm -hmm. but I definitely uh, went to her talk, and yeah, that was mm -hmm. good. So NetBSD for the gamers, you can now use the Linux installer for GOG on NetBSD. And uh, of course, GOG prefers uh, you that you, you use their GOG desktop app install uh, or management software to install and manage all your GOG games. But customers always have the option to install the game on their own terms with a platform-specific installer. 
And GOG offers three installers for the Mac, Windows, and Linux, depending on which platform the game is available for. And that can be used on NetBSD in interesting ways. So, um, well, if you're a NetBSD, what do you do? Which one do you pick? So if you wanted to even attempt to play a game distributed to GOG.com, she writes on NetBSD, which one should you pick? The obvious choice is the Linux installer, since Linux is the most similar to NetBSD, right? Au contraire, in practice, I found that it's easier to download the Windows installer. So here's what she means. For example, uh, uh, I ported the open source version of the Aquaria to package source, but that package is only the game's engine, not multimedia data. The multimedia data is still copyrighted. Therefore, you need to get it from somewhere else. GOG is usually a good choice because they distribute the games without DRM. And as mentioned earlier, picking in the Linux installer seemed like a natural choice. But um, she quickly uh, discovered that it didn't go very far. The goofy shell archive that they provide is not portable. So you can see a bit of output here. Uh, not going, getting it very far. Uh, well, okay, yeah, a little bit further. So but basically, using the I know extract tool was able to extract the self-extracting Windows executable um, and get the files uh, instead of dealing with the silly shell archive. Mm, okay. Oh, yeah, and that got uh, at least to a point where there's at least the Pyre running in, in shell or curses-based. And welcomes you to the GOG.com installer and actually lets you walk through the EULA. Ooh, this is scary. Um, well, <laughs> and then you could all do this in the shell archive. Um, <laughs> so the installer asks you if you'd like to install the game data to somewhere other than the default slash GOG games. And you just leave it as a default and work your way through the installer until you have everything installed on your disk. And now, actually, playing the games on NetBSD is a separate matter entirely. The game uh, you've got there, though, uh, is the current Obsession Pyre is built with Monogame and therefore could theoretically work on NetBSD. I think that's also the one that she showed off at MeetBSD um, with the help of a library called FNA and a script for OpenBSD called FNAFI. Uh, she does hope to create a package source package for FNA and a port of FNAFI script to NetBSD at some point. And there's an update also um, haha, lol. It turns out that you install the meta packages slash SUSE 131 package, then you get a whole of the Linux version of glib2, which enables the GOG installer to split out a graphical setup wizard on NetBSD. Ha! Even better. Yep. Uh, I know we talked about the FNAFI tool uh, on FreeBSD in a previous gaming post as well. So mm -hmm. probably all of this works on FreeBSD as well. Oh, yeah, I see a lot of people turning to games now, <laughs> or at least trying it out, well, whether the installer works. <laughs> Jazz Jackrabbit was one of the games that I had on my 486 back in the day. Ah, the memories, the memories. Ah, is that, uh, like, Android <laughs> Pinball and uh, One Must Fall, which was, uh, like, Mortal Kombat, but with giant robots. <laughs> um, Less bloody. <laughs> those were the, th I think they're all from Epic, the gaming company. Um, oh, okay, then, yeah. Probably also. It was a part of a collection I got. Uh, it was interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. The memories. Okay, so. Yes, memories of a gaming. very long time ago. Where you had more time for playing games. Well, it was, yeah. uh, oh, because the other <laughs> one was um, Scunny Kart. It was a bad ripoff of Mario Kart, but with like a skunk and a hippopotamus and oh, stuff yeah, and instead you, of, you, instead you of the licensed hedgehogs? characters. Um, yeah, yeah. And Jazz Jackrabbit was Sonic the Hedgehog, basically. Mm. But on, yeah. slightly different. Um, but playing that split screen with one keyboard, 
So like one person was using like WASD on on the left side of the keyboard and the other person was using like the number pad on the right side of the keyboard. Yeah, that was some hours of fun. Yeah. That's or uh, multiplayer. Weird different... seating arrangements at the computer to fit two people on one keyboard. <laughs> Just move over a little bit so I can reach the keys. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the Beastie Bits this week start right off with software as a reflection of values with none other than Brian Cantrell. Uh, this is a um, podcast, podcast by yeah, Adam Gordon-Bell and uh, asked uh, or interviewed Brian Cantrell about a couple of things that are interesting to people into programming, uh, different programming languages. And it's definitely an interesting listen and you can jump to individual time codes and there's also mm-hmm. mention on operating systems specifically a certain free bsd mm. um so yeah uh in particular uh the point of this one is kind of answering the question you know which operating system is the best or which uh, programming language is the best or which text editor a question that comes up all the time with people on the podcast and so on uh, so control basically says that that's the wrong question Languages, operating systems, and open source communities have to make trade-offs, and they do that based on their values. Uh, so the right language is the one whose values most closely align with yours uh, and your project goals. So if you're trying to pick the right operating system to build an appliance on, you basically need to find excuse me, the operating system that has the same values as your project or your product so that you don't end up at cross purposes with them and that's going to require more work on your part or whatever. But mm. uh, so the idea of this episode here for the podcast is the simple idea carries a lot of weight and I think is a potential to lift up the technical decision or discussions to a higher level on some of this stuff. And uh, I think that is true. Oh yeah, certainly. And if you can't get enough of Brian Cantrell, here's a collection of Brian Cantrell's talks updated for 2018. And oh wow, he has been busy. <laughs> well, this is all of his talks ever, but he added the ones from uh, like the original post was from the beginning of 2018 and it's been updated yeah, yeah. in December. So it includes all of them. And in the bonus material is uh, some of the podcasts that he's done, including uh, three episodes of BSD Now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you are definitely in for a couple of uh, hours of listening, then uh, download the ones that you haven't heard yet. Uh, what, I, what I found the most amusing of this is that he's broken up a bunch of these talks into a series of trilogies. I'm like, I wonder oh, yeah. where you got that idea from. There's a pattern. <laughs> the original Ken trilogy. <laughs> yeah, to be continued one day, I hope. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, uh, but um, some people are also up for a good game during the holidays, I guess. And there's, of course, uh, Womp or the incorrect Wampus movement probability, which we found on um, the OpenBSD mailing list, uh, OpenBSD-Bugs, more like. Um, and the thing here is described as the computation of Wampus movement probability in game slash Womp slash Womp.c has a parenthesis problem that causes it to not work the way it evidently is meant to and raises a warning in GCC 8.2 with yeah, uh, warnings so basically, all. Uh, when compiling OpenBSD under a newer version of GCC, it pointed out a warning and someone actually looked at it and found 
that that warning is correct and this code is not actually doing what it the author likely intended it to do. Mm-hmm. So the body uh, of the condition is um, you know arc for random uniform on the level. Uh, if that's equal to easy, then return twelve. Otherwise, return um, nine uh, less than the last chance plus equals two. Uh, what they probably meant was return uh, 12 if it's easy or 9 if it's not, and then compare that to last chance plus equals 2. I choose a random number in the range of 0 to 12 or 0 to 9, depending on which level, if it's easy or hard, and bump the last chance unconditionally. Uh, as currently written, when the level is easy, the code reduces down to uh, 9 is greater than last chance plus equals 2, uh, and when level's hard, it reduces down to uh, if arc random uniform equally is 1, or 9 is uh, greater than last chance plus equal 2, short-circuiting the meaning of last chance and bumped up only half the time. Uh, so it turns out this was making the game easier than it was supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. I fixed it now. <laughs> well, at least <laughs> it's more yes, difficult. so they added some missing braces and everything is happy now. Hmm, okay. I guess this has been around for a while without uh, someone noticing it before. Uh, speaking of programming, actually, there's now a way of debugging Rust with Visual Studio Code on FreeBSD. Woo, there's a lot of mixtures in here, but there's a way to getting it uh, running in Visual Studio Code. If you are interested in that, follow this blog post. There's a couple of instructions to get uh, first the Visual Studio running, then set up Rust, and all on FreeBSD, including the plugins. Uh, it's certainly interesting to see Visual Code running on the FreeBSD desktop here. Yeah, which is cool that uh, that's yeah, possible. If uh, you want a full IDE, then I've heard quite a few good things about VS Code. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's from Anton uh, from the uh, Dublin BSD user group. Excellent. Yeah, he's been a, a Rust guy. Or well, no, the is, VS yeah. Code stuff, I just mean like on Twitter and not on FreeBSD specifically or anything. Mm. Yeah. All righty. Um, but we also have SMB SIFs on FreeBSD. So there's a little update from our not getting tired at all uh, blog post or a poster, Vermadon here. About uh, He has a Samba um, uh, blog post here, a big one as always with screenshots and instructions how to use Samba uh, in the proper way and uh, starting it from FreeBSD and then importing the Samba shares on Windows, of course and then uh, using it for file exchanges and uh, permissions and all these things that you can do. Very nice blog post, very detailed. Uh, If you have a need to share files with Windows and the Unix machines, or FreeBSD in particular, then hit up that blog post. Yep. I've kind of get back to doing some testing. I guess I'm waiting on some hardware to ship. i got to poke somebody about that. Um, Hoping to make a little Samba tuning guide for maximizing 10 gigabit Samba. Oh, yeah. Based on more speed was good. Yeah, give me some more speed. That's always good for integrating with uh, Windows environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so next, we just have a random picture of somebody's beastie tattoo. 
<laughs> body art. It's uh, yeah, there it is, the little the little horny guy. And uh, yeah, well, and there's a couple of uh, comments, of course, on Reddit. And um, yeah, hopefully it doesn't need to get removed soon because other operating systems got in the way. Um, yeah, so this is interesting. <laughs> Um, there's more news from the Package Source 2018 Quarter 4 branch. It's been announced, mm-hmm. of course. And you can find the announcement on the usual place. I've never uh, heard of this package called Chicken. I don't know what that is. But it's all have in, it's new, in all caps. Yeah. yeah. They have Clang 7, Firefox 64, Go 1.11, Midori 7, MySQL 5.7, Perl 5.28, Node 10.14, PHP 7.2, and all the other versions. Postgres 11.1, and 10.6. Oh, fresh. Uh, Python 3.6 and 3.7, Rust 1.31, etc. Okay, they also have... Improved uh, support for Minix 3.4. Because it works with NetBSD, yes. yeah. That's uh, very They've cool. also updated uh, the QMail package for 2018-1230, which adds TLS, SPF, and IPv6 checks. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yeah, it's uh, gives you the freshest stuff you can get on NetBSD, and or at least the quarterly branch. And yeah, people uh, are working on making that... Uh, a good available software package for not just NetBSD because a package source is available on multiple operating systems, which makes it even more uh, appealing. And what we also found is that toying with a wire guard on OpenBSD is a thing, uh, at least according to this blog post here. Mm-hmm. So WireGuard is basically the premise is a, a modern replacement for IPsec um, and its primary implementation is actually a kernel module for Linux, but there's also a userland implementation written in Go. And uh, apparently, with that port, you can run WireGuard on OpenBSD. Ooh, interesting. To be on the safe side even more mm-hmm. with that one, if you want to build your uh, VPN this way. That seems straightforward with uh, you know generating the ASCII art image and uh, configuring the interfaces. It's not too long, so it shouldn't be too difficult mm-hmm. to set up. Very nice. Oh, speaking of OpenBSD, there's also a new USB audio class version 2.0. And that's been provided by Alexander Rachov on OpenBSD-Tech. He writes... This is the generic support for any kind of audio driver? Or basically audio device? Uh, uh, Basically, if a device represents itself as USB audio class, uh, UAC, um, then... Uh, if you have this generic support, then it should just work. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Uh, if you have an audio device that is class compliant or claims to be you know, driverless for, say, OS X, uh, and any one of the host uh, bus combinations above, uh, they'd be very interesting test reports. But basically, you just set uh, the SND IOD and uh, run Mixer and... It should work. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And I think Alan mentioned it before. More, if not all, talks from EuroBSDCon last year are available now on YouTube. 
Uh, this I one don't per- think so. This is this is a, oh. a cell phone recording of one particular talk. Oh yeah, there because no they didn't rec- do recordings. recordings. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it's still something. Um, yes. So this uh, removing Rob gadgets from OpenBSD. Yes, this is uh, Tom Smith uh, just recorded this talk on his cell phone. No, oh, okay. Thank That's, you for doing that. <laughs> yeah, um, something at least um, from the conference. And speaking um, of OpenBSD. Mm-hmm. So they have the beginning of the release page for OpenBSD 6.5, which uh, doesn't actually have a date when it's going to be released yet, which is weird because I thought the dates were already set. <laughs> Maybe they didn't put it in yet, but it's, it's almost it's interesting. there. They updated the copyright to include 2019, but they didn't update the release to mention that this release was oh, right. in 2019. <laughs> yeah, it slipped but, a bit. Uh, it will include uh, Clang support for Mate 64, uh, Oction now, the system automatically detects the number of available cores. However, manually setting of the num cores or core mask uh, still lets you set which ones you want to enable. Uh, or, sorry, still required uh, to enable secondary cores. Um, and the Oction is now possible to use the root disk's DUID uh, in, as the root dev boot parameter instead of having to have a device name, which is handy. Uh, 802.11 improvements and uh, a bunch of other things. So I think this branch is just starting, so this page will change over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Yeah, once it's out, we'll make an announcement. And yeah, uh, it's just only contains what they've done so far, which is some updates to Libra SSL uh, and uh, BGP Looking Glass. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we'll see that it's uh, going to happen sooner mm-hmm. rather than later. And last but not least, we have shell access to historical Unix versions in your browser. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, a Twitter uh, tweet by Jan Schaumann and points us to unix50.org. And certainly, there is... the years of <laughs> Unix, uh, you can now access old machines, including a, a PDP-7 running Unix, at U-N-I-C-S, um, a PDP-1140 running 5th edition, an 11.45 running 6th edition, an 11.70 running 7th edition from 1979, <laughs> uh, a VAX-11.780 running Research Unix, uh, or AT&T System 5 on uh, a PDP-1170 or uh, an IBM 3B2-400, I guess, or 2.11 BSD on a PDP-1170 from 1991. Ooh. This is cool for the historians or just to mm-hmm. want to see what how Unix evolved over the years. Yeah, oh, if you wow. just want to see how much less was included back in 1991. <laughs> and if you're too scared, then you can always use Q to quit and run away in fear. Uh, <laughs> wow, this is cool to just have this interface available in the browser even without installing anything. Um, you're supposed to read the feedback. What are you doing? I'm here. Yeah, I was just <laughs> watching this Unix box boot. Um, so we have, of course, feedback and questions here uh, this week um, from three people. And the first one of those is Brad. For first one for the new year is a ZFS features and upgrades question. And it goes like this. Hello there, Benedict, Ellen, and JT. I have a question about ZFS features and versions and about upgrading pools. With all of the exciting features happening or 
uh, are in the pipeline, I'm curious about a couple of things. I have Z-Pools in my FreeNAS, on my TrueOS box, on my Trident test laptop, and a couple of external hard drives with Z-Pools that I can mount on my BSD boxes as we get along, or as we uh, have on the Linux box running ZFS on Linux. So when I do a Z-Pool status on the two pools on my TrueOS box, one is mirrored SSDs, the other mirrored spinning rust, I see the message. Uh, Oh yeah, some supported features are not available on the pool. Uh, Yeah. So that's a pretty familiar um, message. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, on both pools, embedded data, extendable data set, whole birth, and large blocks are disabled. In addition, SHA-512 and Skeen are disabled on the SSD pool. In addition, every pool I have gives a value of version default for ZFS get version. Yeah, that's the old versioning system. And get new version reports version 5 for each pool on all platforms. However, did a Z pool get all? There are two things. Um, the there's there's a zpool version and a zfs version. So the zfs version is a version of the actual file system. That's five and hasn't changed. Uh, the pool version, I thought it actually returned five thousand. Yeah, that's the the last one. They they bumped it to. But no, it just that. has a value of dash. Huh, okay. okay. Uh, but yes. Um, we don't use numbers to track it anymore. We use individual feature names, like you saw there, uh, embedded underscore data and whole underscore birth, etc. Because um, features show up in different orders on different platforms right now, uh, meaning that a version doesn't really make sense. Um, to try to make it easier to create a pool that's compatible, as we talked about in the beginning of the episode, we're hoping that eventually when you create a pool, you'll be able, or when you upgrade a pool, you'll be able to specify, I want this level of compatibility uh, and have it upgrade. Turn on the features that are available everywhere and avoid the features that aren't available everywhere yet and suppress the message telling you to upgrade if you've already upgraded to a compatibility level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, the issue with the numbers. And so... Um, the other question there is... So basically, um, when he's looking at the feature flags, he finds that the TrueOS and FreeNAS box have 14, the Trident box has 19, and the ZFS box has 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so is so, the warning about ZPool upgrade inaccurate? Is the question. Oh, so it's, it's not a warning so much. You're saying that if you want to use the new features, you have to run ZPool upgrade. Um, but if you do it may not be accessible on older software. Um, yeah. There are features on ZFS and Linux that aren't on FreeBSD yet, and if you enable those, you won't be able to import it on FreeBSD anymore, and vice versa. So um, you're probably best not to update it yet, although some of the ones you're looking at there, like large blocks, are supported everywhere for quite a while. Uh, same with SHA-512. So I'm not sure why... Um, those are not enabled on your machines unless your pools are really, really old. Mm. <clears throat> well, and again, if you not don't really, really old, but yeah, if you don't export and import those pools on other systems anyway, and you just stick with that one system for this one pool, then there's no no worried about yeah. Upgrading so you that can one. you can update them, um, but if you update them too far, then you will uh, not be able to import them on the other systems. Some of the features are what's called read-only compatible. Uh, for example, large blocks. If, uh, or sorry, that's not a read-only compatible one, but uh, for example, with large blocks, you'll be able to read any data, 
sorry, if you enable the long the large blocks feature, but you don't use it, the pool will still be compatible. So each feature flag has three states in ZFS. There's disabled, which means your pool doesn't support it. There's enabled, which means your pool supports it, but you're not using it. And then active, which means that it's using it. Some of the features, like large blocks and SHA-512, uh, when you enable it on some file system somewhere, that will activate it. But if you destroy the file system, the last file system that was using that feature, the feature will revert from active to enabled, and that pool will be able to be import- imported on the other system then. Uh-huh. Um, so yes, this is a little complicated right now, and uh, the global ZFS community is working on making this a bit easier to manage. Because the other thing is right now, when you run ZPool upgrade, you can't kind of cherry pick which it, it defaults to just enabling everything. Um, which made sense in the past, but now you're likely going to say, I want to enable everything that everybody supported at the beginning of 2018. Uh, you know, as long as I don't have any machines that are using more than the year old version of ZFS, this pool will be compatible. Mm. Yeah, it's not too scary having that uh, status. Uh, so you don't need to rush to upgrade um, unless you particularly want to use one of those features on the list, none of which I think really make that big of a difference to you. Mm. Uh, And we're working on improving the messaging there uh, and the ability to ensure that you keep your pools compatible so that you can pull a disk or a pool out of your TrueNAS, FreeNAS, uh, Trident, or Linux box and plug it in the other one and it just work. Yep. But uh, there's a bit of work required to do that, and um, but we'll definitely tell you when there's uh, features available to do that. Mm-hmm. So let's hope that answered your question. And uh, we continue with Andrew about splitting ZFS arrays. Oh, here we go. Mm-hmm. Um, Andre or Andre started um, with uh, free, his FreeNAS experience with version 9.3 and used the upgrades till now. However, after upgrading to 11.1 and new feature flags are available for volume R pool, warning appeared, uh, sound familiar. Uh, based on Alan's advice, uh, he will be migrating to two, three, uh, to two, three disk RAIDs at once with four terabytes and six terabyte Western Digital RAIDs and not upgrade his current pool with the new feature flags. Also, he found a great deal for a Supermicro and uh, pl- uh, is planning next to do 10, a fresh. Basically. Next 10, yeah. Uh, to do a fresh RBC 11.2. To install or maybe 12 by now. Uh, currently, he has his drives 4.4, uh, 4 by 4 terabyte and 1.6 terabytes in uh, 1.5 disk rate Z1. Now, I would like to reuse my 6 terabyte red with two new drives for the start of this new pool. However, if I remove the drive from the 5 disk pool before the data is migrated, uh, would pull my data. Would it, would it would this put the data at risk? I have backups of my important data, but not of my music and videos, which I could uh, re-rip. Uh, so yes, uh, if you pull one disk out of RAID Z1, uh, if another disk fails, then all the data disappears. Mm. So a 60 terabyte pool is currently 78% filled, making the full backup difficult. I've been reading up on some hacks, but do not feel confident enough about using them. The first option would be to buy six terabyte drives and put them in a degraded three disk RAID Z1, migrate the bulk of the data, and then resilver with the old six terabyte drive. Uh, with degraded data or degraded uh, rates in... Right, so basically, yeah. Um, so it's got the five-disc pool. If you created a RAID Z1 uh, designed for three-disc, but with only two of the disks active, the third one disabled, um, 
he'd have about 12 terabytes of space and be able to move most of his 16 terabytes of data to that. Oh, um, and then later add the disk to it? If, yeah. and then add the old 6 terabyte disk to that and get it back to being redundant, the only downside is if one of the two new disks dies during that process, um, but in that case, he still has a copy of the data on the original data remaining pool. four terabyte drives. So yeah. it's not too terrible. Mm. So his second idea would be to create a six terabyte stripe out of a smaller drive and create a temporary three uh, times six terabyte rates at one of the two new drives. And a third option would be to bite the bullet and just buy three drives. However, I'm hoping I could save that money and spend it later on to replace four terabyte drives with 10 terabyte versions of uh, when prices drop a bit. Mm-hmm. And another option would be to start a new pool with two terabytes Samsung's F4 drives and move the files to the new pool more slowly. So this last option triggered the question, which is probably uh, quite obvious to most listeners' views, but I have not been able to find a definite answer. I know you can force a shift equals 12 on 512k drives, but how do well, I, I know for sure? You just mean 512 byte. Uh, byte, yeah, yeah. It's not 512k. We're not there yet. Um but uh, how does how does he know for sure if his pool is written with 4K sectors? Uh, so if you run ZDB, which is a ZFS debugger, dash L, and then the device like slash dev slash ADA 3P2 or whatever it is, um, grep A shift and see what the A shift says it is. Mm. And so, um, yeah, would an emulated 512 drive split up the 4K sectors that are offered or does ZFS overrule this? So yes, if the drive is uh, 5.12 native, meaning it only has 5.12 byte sectors, if you give it 4K to write, it just splits it up, which is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Um, the, down, the the problem you have is if a drive is 5.12 emulated, meaning that the physical sectors are 4K, and when you do a write of 5.12 to it, it reads the whole 4K, modifies whichever 5.12 you change, and then writes the whole 4K again. Uh, which is a lot slower and makes the drive perform worse. Mm. So yeah, I hope that uh, gives you a bit of uh, hints and tips how to get the best way to migrate uh, to a bigger pool or with bigger drives and and the the redundancy, of course, in there. And yeah, hopefully, or maybe someone else from our listeners knows a, a different option maybe. Then uh, yeah, um, there touch. aren't that many options really. Um, it's yeah, but the, the ones he listed are already some uh, good ones that you could pursue without too much danger. Yeah, um, yeah. The way I like to put it is the reason why I like to split up my data into reasonable sized data sets that are like no bigger than twenty percent of the pool is this way. It makes it easier to migrate things around when you need. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. when I was first doing this. Um, something like this, what I did was two separate stripe pools. Yeah. Uh, so inst- so I had two new bigger hard drives and I didn't want to just stripe the two together in case if one fails, I, did, I would lose everything. Whereas if I did two separate pools, if one of them fails, I would still have all the intact files on the other one. Uh, so then with my data set split up, I put a bunch of stuff on one and a bunch of stuff on the other until I freed up enough space uh, to be able to recreate the pools mm. uh, as one big pool in the end. Uh, it went to six times three terabytes. Um, and then eventually added... Bigger drives uh, over time. Added 
five ter- six more five terabyte drives to it, and then eventually replace the original six three terabyte drives with eight terabyte drives. <laughs> yeah, because it's possible without yeah. uh, copying everything over again. Yes, uh, for replacing the smaller drives with bigger drives, I just did one at a time with the resilver thing. Yeah. While but the actually, pool is still active. I think I had I had enough extra SATA slots. I plugged in a couple of drives and did the ZPool replace with both the old and the new version online, but it let me replace multiple disks at once without risking any redundancy. Yeah. yeah. The but, most I've ever uh, done was a concurrent two. replace of 10 of 12 drives at once. Ooh. That went How long did fast. that take? Yeah. Uh, not very long because you're basically reading from all 12 drives and writing to 10 drives. Uh, nice. Instead of a normal resilver, Maybe you're reading from all 12 drives, but you're only writing to one. So you're basically speed limited to one drive. But if you're doing this <laughs> online, uh, then you can get it going really quick. Yeah, all the drives are always busy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and we move on to Michael uh, with a priority slash nice value for Jail's question. It goes like the following. Hey, Alan and Benedict. As always, love the show. Thank you, Michael. A uh, quick question for you: Is it possible to set a nice value or similar for a jail or set a jails or set of jails such as when they are started, they get a higher priority for CPU time? Uh, he can't seem to find anything online or in man pages for this, and looked uh, RACTL in RCTL, uh, but that seems more for resource constraints than priority. So, an example right. use case mm-hmm. is listed. Um, so he has a Pudria jail for building ports. This should be to take the back burner. It doesn't really care how long it takes to chuck. Second would be a Postgres jail. These things need to be snappy, high priority. And third would be the web server, also high priority, but less than Postgres for dependency reasons. Right. So if just like other processes, if you set the nice level on a process, any children spawned by that process inherit that level. So basically in the command that starts the jail, just start it with a nice level that you want. Um, there's some support for this in the existing like RC scripts, um, but generally it'd be for, you know, if you're using IO cage or easy jail or whatever, it would end up only or setting the nice level for all the jails, not necessarily. That. So um, just like a normal user is not allowed, uh, is allowed to make the process more nice, but not less nice. The same applies to jails. Um, so when you set a nice level for the whole jail, basically, when you start the jail, if you start the init in the jail with a nice level of three, then every process uh, will start with a level of at least three. A process can make itself more nice, but it can never be less nice than the three uh, or something. And so if you did it with Pudrier, you could make them all start with a nice level of 20 or whatever the max is. And your Postgres, you could purposely start it with a nice of like negative five or something, uh, and that would ensure the problem. Uh, although in the end, uh, hopefully you're not oversubscribing things so much that it's a problem. But I can see how running Pudrier on your database server, you would definitely want to nice the Pudrier negative and the or the Pudrier positive and the Postgres negative. Mm. Um, what about pinning certain jails to a certain CPU? You can also use uh, CPU set to say Pudrier can only use n minus one or n minus two of the CPUs and Postgres can use them all and that will make sure that uh, at least one or two CPU cores are dedicated to the Postgres jail if you want. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but yes, if you just start the jail with a nice level, it will be inherited by everything in the jail. And the jail will not be able to make it less nice than the initial level you started with. Yeah, to make sure it doesn't steal too much resources <clears throat> from other... Yeah, uh, it, it depends on how you're building the jails a little bit, how you're going to go about specifying it at startup. But in general, that's... Yeah, it works the same way as other processes work. If you just start init in the jail with a nice level, then everything started by init in the jail as it starts up will uh, inherit that level. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and he writes he's excited about the 12 release as we are, and it's out now. So try that with your... And maybe that already gives you a little speed boost for your jails. Um. Yeah, th so thanks for sending in those questions. Always send us new questions to mm -hmm. feedback at bsdnow.tv. Otherwise, we'll be in that section a bit short. We have to ask questions ourselves, and you can't answer them <laughs> without a delay, at least. So, yes. yeah. If we have to start asking you questions, you're going to regret it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So uh, other things uh, that you find, blog posts, comments, show ideas, topics for us, also good to send to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll have something to cover in future episodes of this show. So this is the first episode for 2019, but won't be the last one and we will definitely see you next week. All right.